Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday morning. Uh, we are still going through the COVID crisis, which that's okay. We're back to work. I have got my longtime good friend, Doug Rosen, on the other end. Doug, what's going on? Not much, man. How's things in uh, Colorado with COVID? It's not. I mean, they just made it a lot. You got to wear a mask here in Wheat Ridge. Uh, but, man, my life is not. Uh, I live up in the sticks. You know, my life hasn't really changed much i mean they i think i'm supposed to wear a three a mask at the 3d course which you can imagine i'm not doing that shit but there's nobody on it so i mean i i don't really there's not really anything that's changed much you're kind of in the thick of things where you're at how how what's it like there in california uh well it sucks if you're a conformist but for the most part other than the gym closing my life hasn't changed i still go to the range and shoot they still let us play golf fish stuff like that. So, uh, that's what I do. I have a little home gym that I try and stay fit at. Then I mountain bike for my cardio. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, same kind of deal. We got a gym downstairs and I, I don't, I don't mountain bike, although I probably should doing backpack cardio, but, uh, but for everybody listening in, just give like a brief, uh, overview of Doug and Doug's pretty well-rounded individual. Doug is, um, well, he's an archer. He's one reading. He's taken in the top three, a few times. He's a backpack hunter, uh, Doug was a police officer. He was on a SWAT team. Uh, you're, I guess you could say you're a, somewhat of a sniper or at least very well-rounded in, uh, rifle shooting as well. So pretty vast in-depth knowledge of multiple different things. And you've got common sense, which I always liked because you, you know, you would try gear and then you'd be like, yeah, I thought that'd work. It fucking sucked. Same kind of sh- shit that I do, which is, you know, handy. How long were you on a SWAT team? Well, I worked for two different departments. The first one was uh, I was on their SWAT team for 10 years, but it was a part-time team where it was as needed when they needed us and then training. And then I spent nine years on another team that was full-time, and that's all we did for uh, every day of the week was SWAT-related things. So about 20 years, but the nine years was really the bulk of uh, the experience and the amount of call-outs and and work related to that. Are you happy you stayed on a, a SWAT team rather than, I don't know, I'm not a police officer, a beat cop or more of a patrol car cop? Um, yeah. For me, at our department, SWAT was kind of the, the top tier it, it, for most people. So once we got there, we really never left unless we promoted out. And I, I left uh, to promote right at the end of my career. And then I retired last July. So uh, if it wouldn't have been for promoting for the money, uh, on my retirement end, I probably would have retired from there. We'll probably dive down a ton of rabbit holes here, but you and I actually initially met on a website, as gay as that sounds. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no shit, backpackingmatch.com. Um, and I remember, I think we were talking about one of the things was like the Sitka Bivy 45 and an MR yeah. crew cab <laughs> trying different packs. And obviously in the position I'm in now, I've, all that I've learned in the past, but one thing in the MR crew cab, there's nothing wrong with that pack, but the way they sold it for backpack hunts was not the greatest option in the world. Cause you're stacking a ton of shit on there. And obviously I'm the president of Kafaru, but I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of mystery ranch. I don't have any issue with it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that pack was, was designed with good intentions, but when you start packing that weight away from you, and that's where it went. Instead of going vertical, it became a monster to try and uh, pack with any heavy weight. Well, we have a, a, a striker right now, which is um, 
kind of the same principle. It's obviously built way, way different, but as you can imagine, and I don't know how well you would do in customer service when people, can I do 10 days in that? And I'm like, well, you can do whatever you want, but why? Right. That, that is not the optimal pack for that. Like, yeah, you know, or, or, Hey, can I do, I just had one on my, my lot or my, I'm doing a Q and a in a 44 mag, which is, you know, right around 4,000. Can I do a seven to 10 day trip? And it's like, if you can, or you're saying you can, you are extremely advanced and very knowledgeable or you're full of shit. And there's not really thing in the middle because I mean, we talked about weight. What was it for a 10, 12 day blacktail hunt? What were you packing in for weight? Everything in my counting my bow strapped to it going in, I could get 10 days at about 60 pounds. Yeah. And and I would need 5,500 cubic inches because the food, that, that volume of food just takes up your cubic inches. You can't, you can't get away from how much a mountain house takes up and all your other ancillary items that you eat. So yeah, you can eat it down, but you need those cubic inches to start. And you don't eat nearly as much as me. I remember there, we ran out of food on the one hunt. You were eating Starburst all day. I'm like, I, yeah. I was going to oh. die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that was back in like 2012 with Gillingham. And uh, we, we didn't eat much, but yeah, yeah, it, it is what it is. I, I try and pack as light. I'm an ounce counter uh, for the most part. So I try and take what I need as opposed to just take everything and then pack it around for fun. Yeah. And I've done, I don't know if, you know, some podcasts and articles and, and, and you're in my views are pretty close to the same on a lot of stuff is, you know, if it's in the pack, it's because I need it. You're a little more anal on weighing stuff and, and things like that. You do spreadsheets, but for me, I've got my stuff dialed down to where there isn't a whole lot I can even get rid of. Like if it's in the pack, I've, I've do this enough. I've got to have it. And so on a 10 to 12 day hunt, I, I can't really get below 60 pounds if I've got a spotter and a tripod. I just, you know, if I didn't need all that crap, I, I obviously would be lighter, but you, I'm eating two pounds of food a day. I, so yeah, I, and I've, <laughs> I'm probably in the pound and a half food a day and people don't realize, but if, if I'm, and I hunt mostly solo, is that just my optics tripod binoculars and the wep- whatever weapon of choice it is, is 20 pounds. Just just that part of it, not even counting clothing, food, your your camping items, your your sleep system, just 20 pounds in pure optics in a weapon. And that's, you know, that's a third of my weight, but it's also what keeps me from having to walk two miles to determine if that blacktail that I saw is a trophy class animal or not. Yeah. And, and that, uh, you know, people, cause I pack in a 95 normally, which does suck, but it saves a lot of you know, saves a lot of walking. And, and, uh, I mean, while you and I are on here, people might as well learn a lot of things. And I don't know how much you went down, uh, what would I say that the different phases, the poverty phase of gear to the gadget phase to the, uh, my wife's going to kill me because I bought too much shit phase to the actual, I got in my pack what I need phase. But I remember I, you know, one time I brought like soap and deodorant and, you know, as you kind of learn more and more, pretty soon, <laughs> there ain't a whole lot in the pack. And so like clothing, what do you bring for clothing? Let's say Colorado or California. Um, cause you hunt in the, in the, uh, you know what? I'm not going to say where you hunt cause we don't need to overblow that area anymore than it already is, but not too much different between September there and September in the high country in Colorado, a little bit different, but what are your, what, what's your clothing? 
I don't bring extra clothing for the most part. I'll have uh, the clothes I wear in, and I'll bring one pair of socks and one pair of underwear. And I will, if if the weather forecast shows a good chance of rain, then I'll bring a light rain jacket, but no rain pants. And other than the pants I wear in, which in September, um, there's some chance of rain here. Um, almost all my clothing's Kuyu stuff, but for the most part, very few extra clothings if I'm by myself. Uh, sometimes I hunt with my buddies who I started hunting with who have llamas, and that helps a lot because then I can bring a few extra layers and be a little bit more prepared as opposed to sitting out some rainstorms underneath some tree and getting wet. Yeah, and I'm not too much different, and I try to explain to guys like this. Uh, I've got a base layer of fleece, um, a, a puffy jacket, and a rain top, and the rain pants are... It's a 50-50. If I look at the weather, the thing with Colorado is the sun always comes out. So I may suck it for a day, but the shit will dry out the next day. That is not the greatest advice. And when I know weather's going to be bad, I bring rain pants. But that's, yeah. all, that's all I bring. I bring one extra set of socks um, and one extra set of underwear on a 10- to 12-day hunt because usually I'll let one kind of dry out and wear the other one. And that's as, that's it. That's as much. <laughs> And I wear the pants in that I wear, and that's all I got. Now, I smell horrible when I come out, but it's better than dying going in. Yeah, and, I, and I'm not there to win any contests for how I look or how I smell. But going in last year in 2019, we had llamas, but I left the first day to get up to the higher part of the country to scout a particular basin, and it poured rain the entire walk in, five hours of walk in. And I just got into my bivy sack, uh, dressed. And in the morning, I was fairly dry, just from the bivy sack pulling moisture away and uh, your body temperature drying things out. Yeah, and it, I mean, it works. And I think woodsmanship goes a lot farther than people probably realize. If you're a good, if you've got, if you're one, pretty hardened in the mind, and two, have pretty good field craft, you can carry a lot less shit. Um, just because you know what you can get away with and, and, and everything else. And you've run some pretty, you've run multiple different, you know, shelters. What do you, what do you, what's your lightweight shelter now? Well, I still run, uh, the big Agnes three wire bivy if I run a bivy and I have the very first version Kuyu mountain star one P the one that leaked, you know, they had a run of those tents, the first run that were fine. And then a second run that the DWR finish was not applied correctly. And I have the first version of that, and it has been bulletproof. I've had it in the worst weather I've ever been in, in Nevada, multiple years, and it has never had one problem. And then if I want a little bit more room, I run the Big Agnes Copper Spur uh, UL2, and those are my my three shelters I choose from depending on what what I'm doing and where I'm going. Yeah, and I don't – I'm – the Fly Creek from Big Agnes I am not a fan of, but that Copper Spur, I suggest that a lot for a – I mean, I wouldn't go on a sheep hunt or anything with it, um, but, you know, for for what you're doing, high country mule deer, unless you get a crazy high wind, that is a pretty badass shelter that I've seen several of those uh, fly creeks blow over. But the copper spurs, I haven't seen too many of those go down. Those things are pretty solid and not not horribly priced. Yeah, and they're they're relatively light. I know I have the two-person one, and it's just right at three pounds the way I have it stuffed in there and the stakes that I've changed out and stuff. And, you know, the downfall of the Fly Creek for me, because I had one, uh, is it's a front-opening one. 
And I hate that concept that you got to open up the front and kind of crawl in backwards or go in head first and then turn around to secure your shelter. If there's any rain or any problems with the environmental conditions, when you open that up, everything blows right in and it just is a pain in the butt. Yeah. And it it certainly can be. I use some uh, front entries from, from Hilleberg and that is one of the downfalls. Actually, did you see that new Hilleberg trekking pole shelter? No. That's got Doug written all over it. Yeah. (laughs) I I do like trekking pole shelters to saving weight. What's nice is you can extend the trekking pole up and get the outer shell way off the ground and it's Mm -hmm. dual doors. So you can get some crazy, wind blowing through there when it's hotter than balls. And sometimes the hotter than balls is worse than the weather because you just can't find shade when you're above tree line. Yep. It sucks. So, <laughs> Yeah. My first couple trips to Colorado, we scouted and we were in some, some sun we couldn't get away from. Didn't matter what we did. And it was literally a miserable time looking for elk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, for sure. Get, go into archery here for a little bit. Winning, yeah. winning Redding um, is a pretty fucking big deal, and I don't realize I don't think people realize how many. I shot Redding before, and I hate it because it takes forever to shoot. Uh, <laughs> what's a yeah. day, what's a day at Redding to finish the course? You know, a lot of it depends on where you start. Um, if you start, uh, <laughs> you know, day one in the mid forty targets, the forties to fifties, it could take you six hours plus to shoot 25 targets. Um, but if you start in the bottom part of the Canyon in the, in the 15 to 20 range, or you start in target 60 ish, you can get done in about four and a half hours. Uh, just certain parts of that course shoot a little faster than others because of the layout or the yardages are more condensed to, to be similar. So it's a, uh, you just have to go there thinking, the only thing I got to do today is shoot 25 targets and take how long, take how long it takes me to get done. How many people were in your class when you won? I am not 100% sure, but somewhere in the for the bow and a freestyle, which is five fixed pins with a 12-inch or shorter front stabilizer, there's probably in the neighborhood of 400 plus um, in, the, in the trail shoot portion. And then the NFAA portion, not everybody pays for that because if they don't have a chance, they don't really want to pay the entry fee. There's probably a hundred of those. And then we, sh- I shot the money class, which is a team and an individual event. And there's only about 20 guys who pony up the money to shoot that. It all depends on, you know, some people say they win Reading because they won the trail shoot part. And they have no idea that when you shoot the money part, the amount of pressure shooting with every other money shooter that is there head to head is a lot better, easier than shooting with your, your wife and your two kids. It will, it will certainly affect your bottom line score. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Well, what, uh, when, when you won it, was that something about halfway through where you knew you were on fire or were you like, was there a <laughs> hesitate? Were, were you nervous? Uh, no, I, I shot it. I've shot it a lot. Uh, I mean, I kind of cut my teeth in the bow and freestyle stuff and I don't know, I've shot Redding in the, t- in the money part, maybe six or seven years in a row, but I knew Going in, I'd shot good scores leading up to Reading in our, our local tournaments and our other state tournaments, but I knew right away it was going to be a good week. Uh, I don't think I dropped a single point over the first 11 targets. Uh, I was clean, and then I dropped one or two on a couple long ones, which our worried bow and freestyle guys generally drop them uh, when you're having to stack pins. 
But I mean, I ended up shooting a 15-21 in pins, which um, I, I believe was the second highest score I ever shot with pins there. Uh, I know Matt Schmitz out of Washington. He's a good guy. I shot with him one year, and he shot a 15-24, I believe. And I thought it was the most impressive, unrealistic thing I ever witnessed. And then as I got better, I was like, well, it is doable. Uh, but, you know, Matt's a great shooter. He's a real good dude and can he can shoot pins as well as anybody out there. Yeah, what what was your setup? I was shooting a Hoyt uh, Hyper Edge, shot a gold tip ultralight 400 that weighed about 353 grains, which I'm still shooting the same arrow, 120 grains up front. It shoots about 291. You know, Redding has a, a speed check at 300 feet per second. So I try and keep it up there as much as I can for pins because it just helps with the gapping and the stacking. Um, I shot about 60 pounds and shot a uh, – that year I shot two different releases actually during the tournament. I shot a Stan uh, Long Neck Perfex, and I also saw that I shot a Stan uh, Black Pearl Hinge. So – I shot a button and a hinge of both during the tournament uh, at the same time. What uh, what do you do for, for your hunting bow? Uh, what do you usually have for a hunting bow? Right now, I'm still shooting the Carbon Defiant by Hoyt with the 2.1 cam. I, I, I don't know if I've ever had a bow hold any better than that. Uh, even it holds better than my target bow, but it, it's because I'm it's the it's the weight of it that makes it hold better. But I shoot at about 71 pounds with a 400 and 80 grain um, gold tip pro hunter um, and it only has about 160 up front has a insert with a weight on it and then a 100 grain point and it does a pretty good job and it holds like no other bow i've ever had so i've never really upgraded my hunting bow it's every bit of four plus years old now what arrow are you shooting out of that the uh gold tip pro hunters i, I guess they say how much weight sorry <laughs> oh they're about 400 and 80 grains total weight. I shoot kind of a, I'm not a conformist with people on their hunting veins. I shoot a kind of a longer hunting vein. I shoot a, a Flex Fletch uh, 310, which is like 3.1 inches long in the scheme of things. And I, I prefer a longer vein versus a higher profile vein for me. And I've done some testing with some chronographs and long range chronographing uh, back before I had a lab radar unit that does it all for you. And that's just what I found I liked best. Yeah, Fletch Flex, that was the, the vein to have back in the day. I People ask me all the time as far as, uh, you know, I shoot Max Stealths. Um, they're yeah. a little high profile, but not crazy, crazy. But, you know, I, there's something to be said. Those super spines that Gold Tip made or whatever the hell their vein company is, those, uh, I would shoot three inch super spine for Fletch. Uh, had good luck with those. I shoot four Fletch Max Stealth out of my compound now. I just, I'm not, I don't know about you. I, I don't worry about the pair. I mean, for, to hear you know, I hear people worry about. The, I think people read too much shit on archery talk is the problem and have no applied knowledge because, well, you've seen me shoot and I've seen you shoot. Am I going to notice? I would rather have stability than a tiny little vein on the back end because I don't mind dropping eighty yard bombs, but. I, I've just had better luck grouping with a little more vein on the back end. Um, not necessarily high profile, but. I think you and I have the same opinions. There's 99% of the people on Archery Talk or on all these websites are, they're keyboard warriors and they're, you know, half of them are probably sitting in their mom's basement 
40 years old, unemployed, pecking away, saying that there's some backcountry hunter or archer, and it does get a little old. But once you start testing and you do your own testing and you see it for your own self, you start to realize that a lot of the stuff you read really is just people regurgitating something they heard from somebody else and it's never been tested. Yeah, it's it's funny. I, I started a Kafaru Insiders page just for, you know, guys to help people out. And the, the one thing I found, and like I brought up with the 44 mag and the 7 to 10 day thing, uh, you know, somebody asked uh, what pack or gear, something for a 14 day hunt. I think there was 48 replies. I think 46 people had never done one. Yeah. And... I mean, on, on one, how many people do you know have done a 14-day backpack hunt? Uh, a couple, two yeah. or three. And you best. know a lot of motherfuckers. Yeah, and, they're, <laughs> and they're, for the most part, they're they're mostly sheep hunters. Yeah. I, I don't know if there's any need to do a 14-day elk hunt. I think you're better off coming out for a day and cleaning up and getting a good meal and then going in for another six days. Dude, yeah, there's so many people that message me about that. I'm like, how about you do five? And go eat a cheeseburger and shower and go back in. Yeah. Um, because I, the only the only time, like I, you know, if you fight so far in, you know, there's uh, and you've got good water and in in like in case of Frank and I, or if you like, I have no doubt you and I and Frank can do a twelve to fourteen day mule deer hunt, no problem. Is it part of that? Is is it worth the ten mile hike out? Um, the other thing is, are you mentally okay the entire time? If you're motivated the entire time, you don't need to come out, right? I mean, yeah. the, the other thing is, is how much shit you're packing in. If you're just going to make one long slug and camp in the same spot, that's eh, not bad having that weight. If you've got to move that shit around every couple of days, oh, yeah. that's fucking horrible. Um, <laughs> so when you and I went hunting, we, we, we didn't stay in one camp one, one night was it. We moved camp every single day. Yeah. So almost every step we took had our entire camp system with us. And that you don't want to do a 12 day or 14 day hunt like that. That's rough, but that's what some of those sheep hunters do. And that's, that's serious hunting. Well, yeah. And I, I just, uh, you know, I, as I say this, I get bashed a lot. Like I'm, I'm talking down to people. I'm not talking down to you. I'm trying to make your life fucking easier. So listen, cause we've already screwed it up. Um, yep. Backpack hunting with 60 pounds on your back sucks balls. And I know a lot of people listened to Cameron back in the day and the bivy backpack hunting. And, you know, that three-wire bivy, which I got that idea, I think, from you because I still use one now from time to time. Yeah, I used that when we were in Colorado. That's what oh, I yeah. used. Yeah, decent enough weather. You know, three to five days in that, that's fine. 14 days in that bivy starts oh, to yeah. suck. <laughs> Especially if you had a day of weather where you were weathered in. You, you, oh, I, yeah. you could do it. You'd have to lay out and just get wet and have to deal with it because I don't want to sit in that bivy for 10, 12 hours at a pop. It's it's like a coffin. Uh, yeah, it's it's bad. And, you know, with the, the people kind of, you know, that are, that are, that are actually going to heed the advice, kind of break it down and we can bounce this back and forth off of each other and, and see if we kind of agree, which I pretty much know we do. But Elk hunting, I see no reason to go more than five days on foot. Yeah. So I think if you haven't found them in five days, you probably need to change locations anyway. Right. Yeah. And if you're in a really good spot, you can leave your shit, run yeah. out with an empty pack, grab more food, and come back in with a light pack, shower, grab a meal, you're rejuvenated. And yep. Yeah, absolutely. You, 100%. You, you cannot 
I say you cannot. We both have carried very, very large loads out for long distances. You're probably not going to be more than three miles in, and you shouldn't be for elk anyway, two and a half maybe, because of the weight getting it out in the distance. So not to say you can't. I don't want a bunch of emails of I killed one seven miles in. I'm proud yeah. of you, and Ringo's proud of you. Most humans cannot do that. Yeah, and most people I don't think, well, a lot of people aren't successful, so they don't they don't really know what it's like to do those heavy loads out, especially like for me, I, I like to make one trip. I don't care if my pack is 80 pounds and I get it out or if it's 120 pounds, I don't want to have to walk that walk twice if I don't have to. So if there's two of us that kill an elk, we almost always bone it out and we will suffer once getting it out together than taking lighter trips and walking in there twice to get it. Yeah. We're, we're the same way. And the worst one of those I had was with Colton, and I can't remember. It was five and a half or six miles, but it was downhill. Dude, it, it literally, it took some life off me. It was bad. Um, yeah. And it was downhill. And so, you know, when you talk about only being a mile and a half, two miles in, hunting elk, which is still a good bit of distance, you can get a half an elk out in that trip. And if you want to leave your shit, you can run out, rejuvenate, grab a burger. And if you don't, just take all your stuff out do the same thing and then head to another area. So I, that's why five days is kind of, you know, that that's my suggestion. Now, mule deer, when you're going in really far, a mule deer's lighter weight. One guy can pack a mule deer out with his gear. Um, you're generally not bivy hunting mule deer. Some guys do, but for the most part, you've got a base camp and a couple glassing spots. And so you're not carrying all that shit every day. Now, this is mule deer, not blacktail. Blacktail are pain in the ass, which... Doug's killed some of those and they suck. Um, in my opinion, the mule deer though, you're, you're usually got more of a base camp. And so going in for longer days, I don't mind as much because, um, you've got multiple basins. You're not going that far. You're, you know, when I say that meaning with heavyweight, you got a day pack going up to a glassing spot. So I don't mind going a little bit longer for mule deer. Um, is it the same with you and is it different with blacktail? Well, for mule deer, most of my, my, backpack mule deer hunting has been done in Nevada and um you know I'm fortunate enough Ed Fanchin who uh is you know one, one of the best hunters I know uh who live, now lives in Arizona and Brent Miller who was the one who started the Relentless 365 magazine I kind of started hunting with those guys in Nevada and we did it a little differently we took horses into a base camp and we had a lot of good food there, and then we would leave. We were there for about two hours the first day, and then we we would bivy out, you know, basically four or five days at a pop, and we'd come back and refuel, but it never worked out that way. And it generally, whoever killed the first buck took it back to camp and then brought everybody's food back to replenish. So we'd stay away from that camp for six, seven days at a time and then come back, and our last night we'd eat like kings. Yeah. And then blacktail hunting, man, I wish it was a lot easier because I do enjoy it. But if I go like rifle hunting, it's a lot easier because my buddies usually meet, meet me up there and they brought llamas. So we pre-make all of our food and we eat really well for a, for a, a quote, backpack hunt. But we have a base camp and then I do take bivy gear out and sometimes I'll stay out on my own a day or so because I found some bucks that are just too far from base camp our base camp's about 12 miles in and, and we can get about another three or four miles in before we start running into 
being easier to go from other trailheads. But when I solo hunt that archery, it's rough. They're five and six day trips that are by yourself with all your food. And I will move camp repeatedly if I can't find the bucks I'm looking for. So it's one of those hunts where every day I could be at a different camp. Yeah, which is um, every situation is um, is obviously different state to state, area to area. I think a lot of the people that come from back east and the Midwest that um, plan some of these hunts have such a one high expectation or they have uh, they're not very fluid. They've got kind of this plan in their mind. They have no idea exactly what's going to happen, but they have this one specific plan. And man, it's been so long. I forgot. You know, I don't know what it's like to not know. And you might have to move, whether it's mule deer or most guys don't hunt blacktail or elk. You need to be very flexible on what you're doing. This area that you've mapped out, let's say that hunting fool or whoever told you to go to, you know, you might get in there and it, and it may suck and you need to have the physical ability to move and also not get hung up in there because, I mean, you can spend five to seven days in one area and not see an elk pretty easily. In fact, the year you came out with me, we got into some elk, but that was one of the worst years I've ever hunted. We hunted our ass off for, what, nine days? Pretty slim pickings. Uh, it was I rough. think we were an elk, but we actually put an arrow on our bow a couple times. But, yeah, we were back there for quite a while. And I, I think some people make their plan, and, and they're afraid to, to deviate from it. And I think that's part of the problem. You got to be not afraid to know what's over the next ridge. So if you're not seeing whatever animal species that you're hunting in a particular basin, and you've been there for two days, if you're a semi-decent glasser, those animals probably aren't in that basin. It's time to pick up camp and move to another one and, and see what the next, what's over the next ridge. Yeah. And, and that's where kind of physical ability, well, not necessarily hard headedness and physical ability you know, come into to play uh, when you got to, can you got to move? Cause it does suck, but it the, does. It, it, I don't, you know, it's hard for me to explain to guys like, uh, like with Amy, my wife, I haven't talked to you in a little while. My, my wife, we got married, what, three years ago, I guess. And she was more or less vegan when I met her. Now she's fucking addicted to killing shit. And we're going on all kinds of hunts, but I'm trying to, <laughs> you know, we went to Texas and Nebraska and she wants to backpack hunt for elk. And so I'm trying to subtly whoop her ass to let her know what she's about to get into. So like yesterday, we went on a long hike. We live on the border of a state park and, you know, hiked her way down into a canyon. And I'm like, okay, you you set your GPS for for home. Haul your ass back home. I'm going to go a different route. You make it back whatever route you think is best uh, because I've got that Garmin Instinct and it has like a track back. And I said, good luck. And she got back. She's like, that and she's a she's Italian and she's pretty fucking wound for sound and so she's like that fucking sucked and I'm like okay that is about the distance you have to camp from where you start hunting she's like what I'm like well if the elk were where we were our home would be camp so you got to travel that you know I'm trying to get her ready for it well that's just to get into elk if you have to do that every day and then move camp you might have to move camp a mile and a half two miles to get into another you know, basin. And, and, uh, I think it's a lot, I think Colorado loves out of staters that make it three days on a 12 day hunt and then donated the money to the tag and resource fund. Cause I would say attrition rate is 60, 70% of not making it through the entire hunt. I would bet. 
I, I bet it's higher than that. I, I see all these stories on the internet. Hey, I'm going to go for 10 days by myself and two days later, well, I stubbed my toe or I got a hangnail or I got altitude sickness. And I'm like, that's, those are just excuses because it's, if you've never done hunts, I always tell people, you better start with something like a, a three day hunt, yeah. three days solo to get accustomed to what it's like to not hear a human voice or to live with your own thoughts in your head. Uh, Cause they are, it is mentally more difficult than it is physically. Anybody can, can walk. It, it really is. It's walking. It's walking with some weight on your back, but it's still just walking. But the mental fortitude to stick out solo is is probably the most difficult thing I can tell people that they need to try and deal with. Yeah, it is. I mean, you're a mentally tough, you know, dude. And, and I think that's probably one from your job and two, just naturally you know, happens for guys that aren't overly mentally tough. It takes a lot of practice to, to stay in there. And a lot of guys just can't handle solo hunts. They're just not built to go solo. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, some guys need a buddy. I, I, I almost prefer to have a buddy just for safety reasons. Doesn't mean we have to hunt in the same exact area, but if, if I know he's, you know, two ridges over a mile away and something happens, uh, I can get a hold of him and he can help me out or I can help him out. But for me, it's, it's hard to find somebody who's willing to backpack hunt. That that's been the hardest thing. I've taken four or five different guys, archery hunting in the Trinity Alps. No secret that that's where I hunt. Uh, it's, I, I'm not afraid Trinity Alps are big, but it's super rugged and it's, it's a six hour, 12 mile walk just to where my first base camp is. And I've never taken a guy twice. Never once has a guy decided that the next year he wanted to go back there with me. I even had a horse packer take me back there one time, I don't know, 10 years ago. And he said, well, this will be the last time I bring you back here because it's (laughs) rugged country. Uh, You wouldn't think California has that kind of ruggedness, but the Trinity Alps are as rugged as uh, anywhere I've ever hunted. And, and, And I put them right there with like the Sawtooth in Idaho. I think some of those areas are pretty damn rugged too that I've hunted and, and Trinity is just like it. It's just rough country. Yeah. And I haven't messed around in there. I know when you were talking about it, I just looked it out on Google earth and yeah, there, I think people would be surprised that there's some pretty rough areas in, in California, you just obviously have to know, you know, where to go. And every area has different issues like Colorado really, I mean, the weather can be bad up high, but it's the altitude is what is the, ass kicker for, you know, Colorado as much as anything, you know, Alaska, it's the distance you have to go in, in the, in the rain, North Idaho, it's, it's crazy steep and deadfall. And with the Trinity, and I'm not speaking from any experience, you, it just seems like it's rough. You have to go in a long ways and you're hunting basically a unicorn because there's just not that many deer in there. Yeah. Well, each, each year it seems like the deer change how many we have and don't have, but, um, you know, like last year, I thought it was going to be an epic year with the winter we had and the weather we had. I thought, man, horn growth was just going to be outstanding. And I I really never saw what I thought was a close trophy class blacktail the whole whole year. I saw one maybe before archery opened scouting. But other than that, that would have been the only one that I considered a true trophy. And then years we have, you know, mediocre weather and kind of a hard winter and we have this huge bone growth. So I'm not a biologist. I don't understand it all. I just know that if I don't see any big bucks, I get a little disappointed for, cause I'm not back there hunting just to hunt. If I'm shooting a buck, it's, 
I want it to be a trophy class blacktail. What's the biggest blacktail you've you've killed? Well, the one I killed in 2018 is probably probably my biggest. I don't know what he scores because he's a he's a freak. He's on on his right side. He's got two main beams that both have good forks on it, and then he's got about a four inch eye guard, and then he's also got about a nine inch unicorn coming off another part of his main beam. So. He's just a bomber of a buck. He's probably got about 160 inches of total bone, but the way they'd scored, it would be really bad. But I have a bunch of 140, 145 class blacktails, um, some non-typicals that are nine by sevens from this area. But you know, for me, a trophy class blacktail, if it's, if I'm bow hunting, is something 125 to 130, and if I'm rifle hunting, it's you know, Boone and Crockett 135 or better, but it, it's really hard to pass up 130 inch blacktail because that's like a 180 inch mule deer. And I, I don't know if I'd pass up 180 inch mule deer unless I was on some trophy, trophy class ranch or knew that those big bucks were in that area. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole nother subject right there. As far as like what to expect, there are certain areas you can expect like Nevada, I'd shoot the first 150-inch deer I saw in Nevada, um, from I what I know. Because it's getting slim pickings, it seems. Well, yeah, and I I know 10, 15 years ago, I've talked to South about this before. It's just, it, and I, I'm, you know, I'm shooting a stick bow now. So, I mean, I, the distance I had before is gone. Um, you know, but if you go into a more premier unit or, or other units, you know, 180 is kind of, yeah, it's a, a a big decision. Now, high country in Colorado, I'm really looking, I don't care about score. I'm really more looking for something, you know, at least four and a half or, or older, which at this point I've pulled off about half the time. I shot a three-year-old last year, but you got to be realistic. A lot of people, especially elk, should probably just shoot the first thing that walks in front of them, uh, especially their first trip out. I was talking to Eastman's on a podcast and they're like, man, we know guys that have hunted eight to 12 years straight and didn't see an elk for six and haven't killed one yet. Yeah, um, I, I, I wouldn't hunt. You get more experience hunting and harvesting than, than just hunting or waiting to draw that premier tag. You never hunted elk in 10 years. Cause you've been waiting to draw one unit. I think you got to get out there and hunt and kill stuff to, to get better at it. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, look at that. That was a rough year when you and I and Gillingham went, but nine days with, uh, you know, two super fit people and one spastic crazy man that kept passing out on the side of the trail, but we can all shoot, we can all hunt and you can't shoot what you can't find. You know, we just had trouble getting into elk. Yeah. Yeah. Tim is, <laughs> that's a good way to describe him. Spastic. He would run up the trail for three minutes and then stop for three minutes and then run for three and stop for three. <laughs> Was, uh, remember when he wanted to race to the summit? Oh yeah, the last hundred yards up that ridge. <laughs> I hear, I still hear about that from tournament archers, and I don't know how many people he stole that story to, uh, but it was a a lot. But that dude, when he first took off, I remember thinking, you know, I don't get out walked really. Uh, this might be the trip. I cannot walk that fast. And then, like you said, three minutes later, he was basically later. laying on the side of the trail. Yeah, yeah. He he has a gait like nobody else when it comes to how he hunts, and he would literally he was shot out of a rocket for, I don't know, he'd go three four hundred yards, and we didn't even see him. And I and I was thinking the same thing. I was like, man, this guy's going to walk me to the ground. And then you know, four or five minutes later, 
we'd catch right up to him and he'd jump up and he would shoot up the hill again and four or five minutes later we'd see him again yeah definitely the tortoise in the in the hair uh as far as that goes it's a great guy though man i still talk to him uh frequently and he's just a really good dude yeah he's super super funny i was laughing my ass off what's his name made uh uh that song (laughs) yeah what's what's that again yeah nathan brooks yeah he he made that song i was laughing my uh my ass off about that you know, think I've had Tim on the podcast before, and man, you want to talk about stirring up shit? He starts talking about three hundred and seventy grain arrows and mechanicals at fifty pounds. I mean, and yeah. I'm right in the middle of it, right? Because I'm shooting three hundred grain up front on my stick bow, but when I hunted, you know, I shot I don't know one seventy five up front, but I was shooting eighty pounds, and so or ninety. I get a lot of pro shops that get pissed at me because they'll have a dude with a twenty six inch draw that come in and says I'm supposed to shoot a five hundred and 20 grain arrow with 175 up front because Aaron said, well, I got a 29 inch drone. I'm shooting 85 pounds. So it's a, it's, yeah. it's all in, uh, within reason. Yep. You had brought up South Cox. So South and I started, I, I, South and I have talked many times, but <laughs> we were in, I was in Nevada. The first year I ever hunted in Nevada, I was solo hunting and I ended up about eight miles from the trailhead just because that's where I ended up and it looked like good country. And then the next morning is opening day. And I happened to watch this guy shoot and miss. And it ends up being South. Uh, he shoots at a nice buck about a hundred yards above me and he misses. And he's, I don't really talk to him, but I could tell it's South because at the time he was shooting his compound and he had this quiver on his bow that he had this little sock over his arrows and he walked like south and i i'd I'd known of him and then about six months later i see this easton article he wrote an article about this basically saying that this guy was a dick for camping in his hunting spot (laughs) he's talking about me so i reached out to him and that was the year he i guess he he left he he forgot gas or his his stove got left on he didn't have any gas so he was eating dehydrated meals with just cold water and so i i called him up and i said hey i go it wasn't too cool you called me a dick and he's like hey he goes i he goes i wish i wouldn't have put it like that he goes i was just frustrated and then I, my stove didn't work and i was like you know well, i was camped a half mile from you you could have come over and i would have given you some fucking gas so that you can eat well <laughs> and, uh, we've actually been pretty friendly ever since we usually if we both draw tags in nevada we usually have dinner the night before we go into the uh, wilderness. Uh, in the last, you know, he he has a quite a crew that he, guys are cameramen that that go with him and helpers. And uh, I just have, you know, basically it's me and Ed or me and Brent. It's just it's a couple of us, but we always have dinner. He's he's another great guy, great boyer, uh, really good dude, great great hunter too. Just uh, really patient when it comes to his stocks and he's he's one of those guys who can back out of a stock if it's not right first push it and that's another really good trait to have if you're bow hunting is knowing when not to push it well i've had him on we've talked about it several times and as as you know before with me i would just you know shoot something at 80 and not really worry about it where now it's that's a par four and uh fuck me i've had to totally totally reconstruct my hunting style and which has been good, man. It's an adventure. It's fun. I've mean, got the time. What you know? What as far as yeah. you know, but 
holy cow. I mean, now, you know, and, and, and I see, you know, with South or whatever, no matter what, like I can shoot a stick bow as, as good as anybody, but it's still 40 yards is 40 yards. I mean, practice is practice and animals an animal. I'm like, hmm, maybe I can get a little closer. I'll be at 26. Like, Hmm, I wonder if I can cut the distance by 10 and, and South is, is, is very good at that. I mean, he shoots a lot of his, you know, real close. Yeah. He, he hunts, uh, unfortunately, I mean, I do know right where he hunts and, uh, I keep that pretty well hidden, but he hunts in an area where the topography is about as good as you could ever want it for shooting a recurve. Uh, because his, those bucks that he hunts bed up underneath these rock cliffs and he can really just get right above them. And, uh, I, I think if he hunted with a compound in that same, same area, he'd still kill bucks at six, seven, eight yards because the topography lends it to that kind of stalking. Yeah. Oh yeah. And he's, you know, he's very, he's very patient. He knows when's to run. He knows when's to go, when, when to go slow. And, and we've, you know, people ask me, him, the pot, yeah, when everything in your mind is saying, go, go, it's no different than having a good shot execution with a compound or a stick bow. You gotta have some mental control. If everything in your being is saying, go, 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 you have to be able to stop yourself from doing dumb shit or you're going to blow the animal out. And if you've already hiked in seven miles and then the only shot you've got, you step on a giant branch because you can't go slow. Three or four of those, you're probably going to remember and start going slower. I mean, it's just part of life and learning. You know, South has done this forever and had multiple chances. So he may screw up sometimes, but it more often than not, it, it has to do with wind shifting. Cause once you make that many mistakes, like all of us have, once you get good enough, the mistakes are a lot less and it's just yeah. bad luck. And in Nevada, you really, you know, I think if you're ever going to bow hunt and be good at it, you can learn how to do it in Nevada because the winds are, are really stable late in the afternoon for the most part. And if you're ever going to learn how to stalk, you could literally stalk with two people and someone could walk you through it because the winds are that stable and, the topography lends itself to to stalking, at least where I'm hunting. Yeah, and I haven't I haven't messed with Nevada too much. I just I have so much other crap going on. It would be nice, honestly, if I had heard better things about the population and the the uh, you know pressure. I'd probably yeah. go out there. Um, but man, I've heard it's just overpopulated and really rough hunting. It, it's uh, I, mean, I, I do like the hunting. It is rough, and I actually like it because it's rough. It keeps people at bay, but you know, for the most part, I think 95% of all hunters hunt opening weekend and then they're done for the year. And Nevada's no different. If you can get past and start getting into the Tuesday of that opening week and Wednesday, the hunting becomes substantially better for uh, the amount of people that have bailed out of the high country. Oh, yeah, I can imagine that's kind of everywhere, everywhere you go. It, it definitely gets better generally as time goes on. Um, when I was on the one hunt, I don't know if you, I think, you know, do you know Omni, uh, Warner? Have you seen some of the articles he's written? I don't think so. Anyway, I ran into him and his best friend and his brother all at one time. And it actually worked, you know, for actually what happened, which I've told this before, but I was at a glassing point. I thought they saw me and Steve went and took a shit by me. I'm like, well, I guess he didn't see me. Uh, that was awkward. So I climbed down there. We talked, and we ended up figuring it out where they hunted. And, and they were also looking for, you know, 190-plus deer, and I was just looking for something four-and-a-half or older. And so, it, you know, it worked. But yeah. it's kind of funny. Everybody, I, and you know, you know, trying to get people into hunting, but you don't want them in your spot. Uh, 
and, uh, yeah. you, you get back there, it, uh, that's another thing that a lot of people don't know how to handle. Cause if it took everything they physically had to get where they're going and there's people there, if you can't physically go any farther, you're kind of fucked. There's not a whole yeah. lot of options you got. I, I see many people who, who blow their wad getting into camp and then they hunt, you know, they hunt around camp a hundred yards away because they've got nothing left or they have to take two days to recover before they can make it back to uh, areas that are more huntable. Oh yeah. Well, and I mean, I'm lucky now I live at 10,000 feet, so I've got, <laughs> I've got an advantage from there just from being at yeah. high altitude, but well, yeah, I train quite a bit, you know, which helps and, and you're already, it takes a couple of days to get acclimated for most people to the altitude anyway. Yeah. Well, like me going to 10,000 feet, you know, I want to drive in and hang out at 8,000 feet for a day and then maybe go up to 10,000 feet and the next day I might feel better because it, it is substantial uh, if you're not accustomed to it. Yeah, definitely. Man, before we hit an hour, I wanted to cover a couple other things. Yeah. Tuning, man. What? How do you tune? Um, <laughs> because people, man, I get so many questions about this and, and you know, I've got my system, but how do you generally tune, um, you know, both for your... Does it change from your tournament bow? Uh, do you do it the same way? And then, you know, how do you tune for broadheads? Just normal shit. You know, the the process is fairly similar. You know, once I get everything set up, and for the most part, I've shot Hoyts for the last, I don't know, 15 years. I have tried a, about every other bow in the last two years trying to get a replacement, but the bow I have still holds as good as any. But, you know, for the most part, I run – you know, on my Hoyts, I run my center shot at 13 sixteenths. I don't ever change it. Um, I'll yoke tune anything left and right out of it if, if the bow's got a yoke. If the bow's a center center pull bow, meaning it's the burger holes roughly in the center of the riser, then I will almost always start with it about an eighth inch above dead center and level my arrow from there. I don't get too worked up on bear shaft tuning because I've never shot a bear shaft in a tournament or at an animal. So I paper tune it and then I do a modified walk back tune. I shoot it at, at three yards and I shoot it at nine yards. And at three yards, I move the sight till I'm hitting basically a pencil line. And at nine yards, I move the rest. And then I go back and forth until they, they marry up and they're both hitting the line. And if once that does that, then my alignment's good. My second and third axis, I set with Hamsky rests uh, or d- devices. And, uh, that's about it. Um, for my hunting stuff, I don't bear shaft tune that either. I think a broadhead will tell you what's going on when you shoot a broadhead. So I get everything set up just like I would for a target with a field point, And then I take those out to the range and I shoot field points and broadheads together. And I don't really worry about elevation. I only worry about alignment. Uh, and I'll move the rest in and out to affect that a little bit. And sometimes I might even and yoke, yoke it a little bit. I don't want to move the rest much more than a 16th either way. So if I think I got to go a little bit more than that, then I'll yoke tune that broadhead over to where I want it. I'm not a believer that you can have broadheads and field points hitting at every yardage from 10 to 100 yards. I think that's just a total unicorn. We agree with that one. <laughs> <laughs> I did a, a, not a very scientific, but at least scientific thing for me is I shot a field point, a mechanical and a fixed blade through the chronograph. And I did it at basically point blank at 60 yards and a hundred yards. And the drop 
even in the mechanical, uh, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's, it's the whole thing is published on the uh, rock slide forum. It, it is so drastic, but like at 280 feet per second at point blank, the mechanical was at like 252 at 100, and the fixed blade was in the 220s. So you have to pick or choose what you want. If you want your impacts to be the same at, say, 40 and under, easily doable. But at 100, your fixed blade mechanical is going to be a little low. But if you want them to be hitting good at 80 and 100, you can make that happen. But then you're you're going to be a little high at the shorter one. So I think you have to pick or choose. And there's people that are going to go, oh, that guy's crazy. I can get my bow shoots. Well, I think a lot of it is what your acceptable dispersion is. And for an arrow to be four or five inches low at 80 yards is not shooting the same as a field point to me. For some people's group size, that might be within its acceptable group, and that's just not where I'm at. I just, if I think when I shoot an 80-yard dot or when I sight in for 80 yards, it better be like a four-inch, three-inch group. So if, if I'm getting broadheads that are consistently three and four inches low, those aren't grouping at 80 yards. That's a yard and a half, two inches low at 80 yards. So I basically will, I have a 10% rule type thing as if, or kind of, yeah, kind of a 10% rules that if I'm at, at 60, 70, 80 yards and I know I'm going to be a little low, I'll give it like a yard at 60, two yards at 70 and three yards at 80 and four yards at 90. And I guess it's not 10%, but if the yardage says it's 72, then I'll set my sight for 73 or 74, depending on what broadhead I'm shooting. And then that gets, it fills that gap in for me. Yeah. I had Levi on the podcast and I think he said it best is if you're my, or if your fixed blade heads are hitting with your field points, there's probably something wrong with your bow because it's not supposed to because of wind drag and where you're talking about adding for that, that drop. And I get the same thing. Oh, you're full of it. Mind group, whatever. I'm proud of you. That's great. A shooting machine can prove that that's wrong. Correct. So, and it's and been proven. I've done it with the shooting machine. Yeah. Tim Gillingham has done it with a shooting machine and many, many others have done it with a shooting machine. And I just don't think it's possible. And, and I, I guarantee you someone's going to say, well, I can do it and they'll, they'll film it. And unless I'm there, I, I'm, I'm not believing it. I'm going to think that, you know, even if, if I wanted to make a video and make it shoot well, I could shoot at 100 yards with my field point and shoot them right in the middle. And then when I want to shoot 100 yards on video, I could just hold a little high and my broadheads go right in the middle. Yeah. But that's just that's just a lie. I don't I don't think it happens. I eventually bought a lab radar chronograph, which allows me to shoot at 100 yards, and I can set up the lab radar unit to tell me what the speeds are at increments at like 15 yards at 25 yards, 70 yards and hundred yards. And it'll spit out velocities at those distances. So it's a lot easier now to test those things before I was shooting it through the old beta crony. Yeah. And at a hundred yards with the broadheads shooting them through a, I don't know, a 10 inch triangle. I was taking my, my chances of putting a broadhead right through my chronograph. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I try to explain to people, and, and I would imagine you would uh, agree, is if you're, and these, you know, we're not talking internet groups here. Um, if you shoot, it seems like people pick their best day, for one, for shooting. Two is if you shoot um, 80 yards, you shoot five arrows, 
and a field tip's in the middle and a broad head is close and then a field tip's eight inches right and then you miss it once and then you skip the top or hit the very top of the target uh, with the broad head and you get one that's in the bottom, that's their ability of shooting and technically they're hitting the same. You already said this, but that's not the fucking same. That is a group the size of an animal. Um, Top to bottom, that's a mule deer if you're shooting at a Reinhardt 1801. At one time... And and being honest, I got cutthroats, iron wheels, mechanicals, and field tips to hit a Reinhardt 18 and 1 relatively consistently at 80. Not in the middle, but however tall that thing is, what is it, 18 inches tall? An 18-inch group. That is me saying that is as good as I could get it, but they're still not grouping as well as field tips. The other thing is if you screw it on, I say, Doug, screw on a broadhead, walk out the door, and I said that I don't know if you listen to the Levi podcast. Will you bet your left nut it's going to hit that target? Because I'm not. Um, and that's the thing is, I could bet that at 40, I could keep it in a softball, no problem with a broadhead. Can I do it at 80? Well, some of its ability, some of its tuning, some of its your arrows, and with when you start even with a mechanical, because there's a lot of crooked mechanicals. All of that changes the dy- dynamics, the flight, the drag. Everything changes, and the f- I think sixty is you're you're past the point of no return. You can get away with a lot at sixty. Yeah, After you can sixty, get away just in form. I, the reality is, is that field points are more forgiving as well as they are more consistent because the drag is set. Where the broadheads, your form alone could. You could have the most perfectly flying arrow, but human error alone at 60 yards, a small tweak in your form will make that thing miss by five inches. Yeah, exactly. And I just, uh, you know, call it a hater. You can call it whatever you want. I, and I've got a buddy that lives up the road that constantly is posting he can get, you know, broadheads to hit the same at, at, at 80 or 100 uh, fixed blades. Man, if he can, that's great. He's the one because, uh, I, I mean, I take my shooting ability with a compound is as good as, as, as most people's. You know, I'm not by no means my comparing myself to Levi or you or anyone else, but I can not embarrass myself. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you've seen me shoot. Fuck, man, I just can't do it I, on a bet. Like, that's where I, I brought that. Are you going to bet your car? Okay. Fuck no. Well, that's because your ability, your your tuning, your arrows. I mean, you get a coal arrow every now and then. Something yep. goes wrong. It's hard to hit at eighty at that that side of it. And what's your group at eighty? Not with five pin, with with a single pin. What's your what's your uh, standard group at eighty? My goal is to shoot. When I shoot at eighty yards, I shoot an NFAA eighty yard target, which has got a five. It's just a touch over a five inch dot, and I'll shoot between six and eight arrows and I better have, you know, if I'm shooting six, five or five or six in the dot, I'll take, you know, if one's just off, I can live with that. And if I shoot eight, I'm the same way. I want seven or eight in the dot. So, uh, I would say on a good day, they're all in the dot, but for the most part, an average day, it's probably six inches. I probably have a couple outliers that I miss. That's pretty much when, when Lee and I were talking about a standard dinner plate, which is 10 inches. In reality, I can generally keep them in that. I do the same thing, the blue face, the NFAA one spot, whatever you want to call it, five and a half, six inches. Um, when I'm rocking and rolling, they are all in there. Yeah, but in absolutely. reality, I'm going to fling one every now and then. That's just yep. life. 
Well, when I have guys sending me these groups, I'm like, why aren't you in the Olympics? Well, I think one is I think 90% of those people that post stuff online, they cherry pick or they'll shoot, they'll shoot, they'll show a picture of five arrows and it took them 25 ends and they just leave the one in the middle till they get them all in the middle. Or there's one particular guy who posts all the time that I won't say his name. He drives me nuts is he'll say, I only shot two arrows today, one field point, one broadhead at a hundred yards. And he's got a picture. And I mean, they're side by side at a hundred inside of a, a quarter inch area. And I'm like that, that is so, so much bullshit that it just drives me nuts. And I want to call him out and I know, you know who he is because we've talked about him and, uh, it just, it just gives such a bad perception because then other people think that that's the norm and it really isn't at 80 yards with broadheads an eight inch group is a really, really good group at, at 80 yards with a broadhead. That's phenomenal. It's as good as a group can yeah. get for, for 99.9% of the people. Yes. And, and that's, that's eliminating people like the Levi Morgans and the Tim Gillings. Cause I've seen, I remember when we were hunting with Tim, we were driving down a dirt road and he threw his block target out and we drove it. It was like 112 yards. He pulls his bow out and he starts flinging arrows. And I was like, I'm not shooting my broadhead at 112 yards with the gravel road. I go, I'm liable to miss that block. Yeah. And just flung one after another and just pounded him in there. But he's also a world class archer and people don't realize the difference. There's about 25 to 30 guys who I consider world archers who on any given day could win a tournament and then there's a group of these guys who are really close whose scores are close but they're never going to be at that level they just don't have that extra gear that those world-class guys do uh, because they're not full-time you know those 25 to 30 guys they do it for a living their w2 says archer on it you know they're they're that good but yeah i, I would agree make the average person think that oh everybody should be doing that and it's not, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who can win the, win the Olympics on, on the practice range. And then when you say score or you put an animal in front of them, they can barely keep their arrow on the arrow rest. So, uh, it, it's a total different game. And there's a lot of people that post things that make the average guy think that that's the normal. And it just really isn't. And that's the only reason why I'm bringing this up because, you know, one, you're, you're an elite level shooter. You're, you're very, very good. And two, you're not full of shit. Um, and, and I feel bad for guys that, well, they just pay attention to social media. And that's kind of what this last portion was about was, you know, if a guy, if you're, if you're hitting, you know, for, for me, um, on a five spot, uh, with a compound and a hunting bow, I'm going to shoot a 300. Um, my X count's going to be not great with a hunting bow. It's going to be okay because um, it's, a, it's a hunting bow and multiple pins and high poundage. So at 40, you know, softball is an okay day. Copenhagen lid is kind of where I'm wanting to be. Paper plate at 80 with my hunting bow is about, you know, when I and I'm being honest. Like yeah. a lot of guys chime in, that's all you can hit is a paper plate at 80. Yeah, that's fucking what I can hit on a bet. I can hit a paper plate. That is, I've shot for many, many years. I know how to tune. Um, you know, Barry, uh, you know, spin all my arrows uh, straight. You know, I, I, I put my, my, all my arrows on a, like uh, I square off my arrows, put a lot of time into that. Man, I see guys at the range that post online that, that can't hit the target at 80, but one out of three times, and then they have this false persona. And so people, 
I'm just wanting the guys to listen to be realistic to what reality is, you know, and in reality is far from what is on social media. Yep. Or, or go and watch these guys who are elite. It's like, I, I don't even think I'm an elite shooter. I think I'm just a, a good shooter. We have shooters in my area that are, I mean, they're, they're world-class and Paige Pierce lives a couple hours from me. Now Tate Morgan is here in Northern California, who is, let me tell you, that guy can just straight pound it. Like he, he is an elite, elite archer, world-class archer who is now here in Northern California. But we have a, we have 50 guys who are at the level just below world-class who are always battling in tournaments. And those guys are really, really good archers and they still aren't at that world-class level. You, they just don't realize how good those guys really are uh, compared to the average guy. You know, you bring up a good point. Um, looking at that, I'd say you are a high-level shooter. And and I would put myself in somewhat the same category or, or close to that, but I'm not elite. Um, and, what you know, about the time I feel like I might be elite, I'll go shoot with someone that is. And yeah. let's let's be realistic. You you, <laughs> I go to a 3D course, and I'm um, – a 20 target course, high 190s to low 200s. I averaged 10s, hit a couple 8s, hit a few 12s. Yeah. That's not elite when you know guys like, what did Levi say? Le- well, let, uh, good Lord, uh, what what's his name? Jackie, um, oh, man. What, he shot a, a, a 438, 448? or Man, it was something ridiculous. I mean, when you're averaging 60% 12s, on an unknown course, that's elite. <laughs> People that have never shot the unknown game, you, you can't even understand it. You want to watch what these guys can do. Um, Greg Poole with Bow Junkie, he taped the IBO finals for men and women last year. And it, you have no idea how good those guys are at not only judging, but then executing. But when they're shooting, they shoot that 3D turkey. They shot that thing at like, 48 yards and every single guy smoked it and that is you couldn't get every guy single guy to smoke it with a known yardage let alone unknown and that's how good these are and they followed the best i mean it was the it was levi and dan mccarthy and i mean those guys are at a level that are so far above the average guy that it it really is difference between like a pro baseball player and a high school player yeah and, and uh, you know I, I i like talking about this uh just for the simple fact of of guys that are trying to get into the tournament scene what they you know because my wife asks me because she hears all this you know hyperbole or basically blown out of proportion ability that i have and i and i always try to put her back in check where i'm like honey i'm good i am not great and believe me, when you meet someone great, you're like, fuck me running. And so I, I pulled up the YouTube ASA deals and I, she's watching. I'm like, this is unknown yardage, what we're watching. And she's like, they don't use a rangefinder because she's got, she's a rangefinder, baby. She just started. And I'm like, no rangefinder. And I'm like, watch these guys shoot. And we literally one night watched four hours of ASA tournaments. And yeah. she, she's like, well, why don't you try and do that? I'm like, because you know how much I like to kill shit. You know how much fucking time that takes? Just the judging yeah. alone. Yeah. The guys who are, are, are good at the unmarked stuff have their own have they have, they have all have their own targets, their own ranges, and, and and that's their job. And they make a pretty damn good living at it. So 
they put in the time to where they can get good at it. And it, it, it is truly, it's an art form to watch these guys figure out yardage, figure out whether they're going to strategically go for the upper 12 or the lower 12. Uh, it, it is a, it, it's a craft that they have honed and, uh, they have all my respect because they they are the cream of the crop at what they do. Oh, definitely. Uh, what are uh, now that you're retired? Are you going to try and shoot more tournaments? I shoot a lot of tournaments. I shoot about twenty five tournaments a year generally. Although here in California, they've all been shut down for a while. But our outdoor tournament season starts usually the uh, third uh, weekend of February, and we have tournaments here pretty much every weekend through. Uh, you know, probably. June, uh, first week of June, and then I go up to Oregon for the Cascadian Bowman because it's uh, it's the final leg of a uh, a money tournament series that I shoot called the Outlaw Series. You know, and like this weekend would have been Redding, and that's kind of our our holy grail out here. Is once Redding comes, the tournaments they slow down a little bit, and then they pretty much all stop by after Cascadian Bowman up in Oregon because hunting season starts and people start hunting but i yeah, shoot a lot yeah. of tournaments so i'm not a big indoor fan i told myself this year i'm going to shoot more since i'm retired i don't know i've never done that well in indoor and i, I think it's probably more mental so i i almost want to do well so that i can get over that hump of not liking it <laughs> i just can't be that close to that many people man i i i'm kind of the same as you and i was planning on shooting ASA and IBO 3Ds with a stick bow this year just to see how I would do, and they got canceled. I just have more fun at 3Ds than, than indoors. It's pretty stuffy. Um, yeah. our, our stuff is not uh, – Northern California is a little different than Southern California. Our stuff is all safari-based. It's all just like Redding is run. They're 3D animals, but for the most part, m- most of the tournaments have orange dots, uh, and they have a kill ring around them. We have a few other tournaments. We have one that's run like the OPA with two color dots, a 12 dot and a 14 dot. And then we have a new a new NFAA sanctioned tournament that has no dots on it, uh, but it has scoring rings, but it's known distance. But for the most part, the tournaments around here are all, all safari field type targets. And then we do have a few FIDA tournaments that I shoot and then several field uh, tournaments that we shoot around here. Well, man, um, we're hitting over an hour here. Is there right. anything uh, you want to add? Any uh, Do you want to uh, increase your social media status? If so, uh, <laughs> throw down where they can find your adventures on uh, Instagram. I don't have really a social media following. Uh, I just have a Facebook account, and I do have Instagram, but uh, I really only post hunting and uh, archery stuff on mine. I know a lot of people do personal stuff, but... When I was a cop, I didn't put anything on there personal just to kind of keep people from showing up and causing problems. But uh, I don't really care anymore. Uh, but, yeah, just I'm, I'm on Facebook and on Instagram under my name. So, Doug Rosen, that's it. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate the friendship over the years and the insight on trying to make our products better. And I appreciate you coming on. All right, man. Take care. Be safe out there. Yep, you too,